Welcome back to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer. I'm Kenna. I'm Koel. And this is a fucking doozy! I'm so excited. is painted too i know it looks so cute though thanks i got my face painted at work today mm-hmm. along with some of the kiddos yeah. and mine was very minuscule compared to what they all got they got like tigers and oh, they cool. got like butterflies and all this like really cool stuff yeah the I thought admin you got a... at work is really good at drawing i thought you got a face tattoo when you came home yeah for like a hot second i was like whoa he was painting it on me he's like i'm gonna give you the mike tyson i was like please don't <laughs> hell yeah now kith right <laughs> <laughs> i love that meme uh, well, welcome back, everybody. Yeah. It's good to see you guys again, yes. or I guess good for you guys to hear us talking again. Yeah, it's good for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I know you Bask in us. the glory. But this week, you <laughs> did get a case two days after a mental breakdown, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because it was a little bit of a, well, Juneteenth happened, and then uh, in observation of that, we didn't have our episode come out until Tuesday, so. Yes. Yeah. Two days. Speaking of episodes coming out and where you can listen to us and all that jazz, if this is your first time listening, we do have a bunch of different platforms on social media at Diagnosing a Killer. You can shoot us an email at diagnosingakiller at gmail.com. Twitter is at Killer Diagnosis. And if you feel so inclined, you can donate to the Patreon at patreon.com slash diagnosingakiller. At the Patreon levels, you will get in levels two and three, you will get an additional bonus episode on the 29th of every month which is next Thursday or a week from the time that this is going to be released. Mm-hmm. And we are actually going to tell you guys who we're doing for that at the end of this episode. Yeah, you're so going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait. you got to sit on it. Did you <laughs> did you see Hillary's response to the Instagram post? Yes, oh, I love hilarious. that. It's amazing. Hilarious. You were, like, dead. <laughs> I was dead. I would be dead. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Hinting. Okay, tell us what you got. So we did get an email from a loyal listener. This is John. John had listened to the latest episode of the podcast, and he had some things to say about screen printing, Okay. specifically when it comes to, like, our merch, because I have been guilty of using the word sublimination. Okay. John says, on the last episode, talking about the shirt feeling and that it was sublimination, it may not be. Depends on where you get it. If you have a print on demand, it is most likely T... DTG, which is direct to garment, sublimination is similar, but application is different. So T DTG or direct to garment prints as as it says, the printer prints right on the shirt. Sublimination, however, prints to paper and then is applied via heat to a shirt. Mm. I don't I don't know if that's necessarily a vinyl. I didn't ask. I should have. Well, Sorry, iron John. on. Yeah, there's a couple like of an iron on ways. Yeah. I guess. So, yeah, the one that you're feeling is likely screen printing. Since the initial costs of the screen print are high, they don't use that for print on demand. But, yeah, he says he knows way too much about it. But thank you, John, for (laughs) educating us on that because I really feel like that's important so that you guys know the quality of the merch you're getting. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, John. thanks, John. Yeah. And thanks for listening. I didn't know John was an active listener. Yeah. (laughs) Irish John. Irish John. (laughs) Okay, we need to get right the fuck into this because yeah. it is a fucking danger. Yeah, and it's I got plans. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Where are you going to be besides listening to my friend here? I'm so excited. 
Okay, so I said that this is going to be a two-parter. Yes. I also said that my case this week, and again rolling into next week with the two parts, may correlate a little bit with your case okay. for Patreon. Okay. So I'm not going to give it away who you're doing for Patreon, but I will say that for my two-parter, I finally fucking did it. <laughs> Kemper? Bundy. Bundy? Bundy. Oh my lord. Uh, wow, wow, wow. I finally fucking no did No wonder it. it's so much research. I just sat the fuck down and wrote. I was like, here we go. Here we fucking go. He's one of those people where like you literally can't overthink his MO or yeah. his whole life because you're like, it's just way too much. Yeah. Like you would like hurt yourself. Daddy Teddy. <laughs> Daddy Teddy, man. Ted of the West. Ted from the West. Ted or Ted of the West. Ted of the West. So, yes, we are going to be talking about Theodore Robert Bundy, a.k.a. Ted Bundy, a.k.a. a lot of different Theodore, t- nicknames that he has. Theodore Robert Bundlin. Bundlin. The third. <laughs> so, yes, that is going to be this episode. And then, of course, part two will be coming out next week. But let's get this going because it's it. a lot. Okay. Content warning. This episode contains depictions of child abuse, brutal sexual assault, if any of these topics make you uncomfortable, this might not be the episode for you. We encourage you to go listen to another one of our episodes. Remember, your mental health is very important, and we love you. We love you. Bye. Bye. Wow. You could have just said everything under the sun. Yeah, it's a lot of a content warning, and I actually left out some things because there's more, but it's not going to come out till part two. I see. So I'm not going to say it this in this episode. Yeah, makes sense. But I think I did yeah. that with Elliot Roger, too. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Okay, are you ready to get into this? Yes. Let's fucking do it. Theodore Ted Robert Cowell was born on November 24th, 1946, to 22-year-old Eleanor Louise Cowell at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. Interesting. Okay. Already. Already (laughs) interesting. First sentence. (laughs) His biological father's identity has never been confirmed. Although his original birth certificate apparently states that a United States Air Force veteran, Lloyd Marshall, is the father. Okay, so is he what? Cowley? Crowley? Cowell. Cowell. Is his... Is he Bundy? Is he... He's Cowell right now. Okay, but then the other guy's name was Tom... Marshall. Marshall? Yeah, I almost... Tom Marshall. I also want to make it clear, I said Air Force Base really, like, enunciated (laughs) that time, just so that no one made fun of me. It's not Air Force Base. So... On his birth certificate, apparently, it claims that this Lloyd Marshall, Air Force veteran, is his father. Okay. Even with this apparent birth certificate copy, another one exists stating that the father is unknown. So there's, like, two in circulation, apparently. She just said, that guy's a stand-up dude. Put him on the birth certificate. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Louise would later claim that she met a war veteran by the name of Jack Worthington, who abandoned her soon after she became pregnant. So... Worthington, Marshall... Unknown. Unknown. Okay. So there's a lot of different stories going on. Yeah. And she's clearly never been married, because that's her maiden name is... Yeah. Yeah, so remember she had the baby in an unwed mother's home as well. So none of these allegations were ever confirmed, and a census was actually done way later on to see if these men even existed at all. Ooh. There were found to be several men by the names of John Worthington and Lloyd Marshall living near Louise around the time that Ted would have been conceived. So it was not able to be narrowed down, because there's a lot of them. It's going to be any of them, yeah. 
Some family members even speculated that Louise's own dad may have been the true <gasps> biological father of Ted, and this is the most widely believed rumor. However, it was debunked in 2020 when psychiatrist Dorothy Onlow Lewis, I'm sorry, Otno Lewis, claimed that she received a blood sample of Bundy's and tested it against DNA to determine that his birth was not the product of incest. Okay. But it seems like a lot of people think that, and including Ted. Yeah. He might have thought that as well. Because it would have been from the same family line. Otherwise, yeah. You would see that, but I guess she saw that there was another unknown DNA. Yeah, absolutely. And she, I mean, as the mother, God forbid, if that did happen, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think she would put a, put that on the birth certificate, you know, yeah. especially in the 40s. Yeah. I mean, anytime, it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> Any, let alone the 1940s. Jesus. So Ted and his mother would remain in the home for the first two months of his life. I guess they provided assistance. So I just want to correct myself really quick. I've been saying Louise as the name of his mom. That's her middle name. Okay. Her name's Eleanor. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. So they're both her name, but I've been calling her Louise, but her name's Eleanor. Who's Eleanor? Correct myself. (laughs) Who's Marcus? (laughs) So Eleanor thought about putting Ted up for adoption for a while after he was born, but her father refused to let that happen. Hmm. And for the first three years of Ted's life, his maternal grandparents, Samuel Necht Cowell and Eleanor Miriam Cowell, would raise him in Roxborough, Philadelphia. Okay. It's like a lot of long, huge words. Right. (laughs) The grandparents took over the role as Ted's parents in order to avoid negative stigma surrounding a baby being born out of wedlock. Okay. They had said that they had adopted him. Mm -hmm. Family, friends, and Ted alike were told that his grandparents were his biological parents and his mother was his older sister. I get, like, how people try to protect these kids, but at the same time, like, you're only giving them a fucking complex. Yeah. That's the same thing with Berkowitz. Those were his adoptive parents. Didn't know that his adoptive mother was sick yeah. with terminal oh, fucking yeah, cancer. I that. And then they were like, oh, by the way, your mother's dying of cancer. Oh, really? Yeah, she's been sick for like years, but we just didn't tell you. Or like, like sick since she sick since he was a little kid. Yeah. And then not only that, oh by the way, she's your adoptive mother. You don't get that information until she's dead. No, like, seriously. And it's awful. like you're not protecting them. You're protecting yourself from having yeah. to explain something like that. Right. Or having to deal with the emotional consequences of right. that. Like that's not fucking fair. Yeah. I mean I I can't speak I've I i do not know that situation. I don't yeah. know anybody that's been in that situation. I just feel I've had acquaintances that have gone through situations like that and they and they feel robbed and it's just it's really sad absolutely so it wouldn't be until much later that ted would find out the truth about his mother some sources state that ted had told a girlfriend of his that one of his cousins showed him his birth certificate when he was younger Mm -hmm. and called him a bastard which is fucked up while other sources stated that ted told biographers stephen michael sorry stephen mccowd and hugh ainsworth that he had found the birth certificate himself Okay. Either way, he found out later on as an adult. I see. Anne Rule, a biographer and true crime writer who had become very close with Ted in his adult years. She actually was an old co-worker of his as well, and we'll get into that. She stated that he did not find out the truth until 1969 when he found his original birth certificate in Vermont. Hmm. So, again, kind of like... And we'll see that a lot, like, throughout this story. There's a lot of mixed reviews because Ted was one of those people that, like really like to like get in your head and like make you be like what like yeah. the dupers Ugh. like huge dupers yeah there's literally no way to tell like what's fact from what's him just making something up yeah 
everything that I'm going to write and talk about is, like, the most widely believed things I of this see. whole case. Yeah. But it's really no way he, to tell, and we can't ask him. He so. loved to just confuse people with information yeah. and, you know, or try to find, like, a manipulation or a bonding with a specific exactly. person through, oh, you were, grew up in Vermont, so did I. Yeah. You know? Interesting. And even if we could ask him, who knows if he'd be telling the truth or not. Right. So. So Ted allegedly stated once in an interview about his birth certificate or his birth story, quote, maybe I just figured out that there couldn't be 20 years difference in age between a brother and a sister. And Louise always took care of me. I just grew up knowing that I just grew up knowing that she really was my mother. Mm. So he called her Louise as well. Yeah. That's why it was confusing in the beginning, because I think yeah. she went by Louise. That's so interesting, though. I, I that balls on the people that that do stuff like that. And I'm yeah. not in a negative way. I'm just saying like in order to, to cause you're, what you're doing is what you're doing is what you think is best. Yes. So to go your entire life, having this child call you like your sister when that's <sighs> your bio kids. He calls her just by her first name. Yeah. Yeah. And she was there like that whole time. That was, that would have been his mother figure, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. So, either way, growing up, Ted was raised to believe that his grandparents, again, were his bio parents and his mother was his sister. Mm -hmm. On the outside, the family seemed super normal and put together, but on the inside, it was a much different story. Hmm. Tale as old as time. We always hear this. (laughs) Ted's grandmother actually suffered from really bad depression and agoraphobia. Oh, no. For those that do not know, agoraphobia is the extreme or irrational fear of entering open or crowded places, of leaving one's home... Or of being in places in which escape is difficult, such as an airplane. So essentially, she was a homebody. She stayed home all the time. On top of his grandmother's mental illness, his grandfather had been described as having a raging temper. (sighs) This is just so great. Starting out really, really solid for Ted here. Yes. According to Dorothy Lewis, again, professional psychiatrist, Samuel was a, quote, extremely violent and frightening individual who kicked dogs swung cats by their tails, <gasps> and beat people frequently. With the cats? Yeah. <laughs> you beat them with the cats? I'm no. kidding. Gosh, that's awful. Sorry, just a little bit of comic relief. It's there. one that's of those awful, things though. where you, like, it's so uncomfortable. You're it's like, really uncomfortable. Who? Tra- I just can't... Anybody who treats animals like that, you're just oh, a piece of shit. Absolutely. So this, along with a plethora of other things Ted was exposed to in the household, led him to begin showing signs of a disturbance at a very early age. At just three years old. So at the age of three, Ted was reported reported to have taken all the knives from the kitchen and placed them all around his Aunt Julia while she was taking a nap. Oh my god. That's just, not like, even... outlined her body with That's... them. I don't know. That's what I was thinking. Like a crime scene. Like a crime scene. <laughs> Fuck. Yes. At three? At three. That's... I mean, that's not typical behavior. Absolutely not. So <laughs> it's not even miscon. That can not even be misconstrued. There's no way. Like yeah. you're like, this is what it is. Like, oh, it's not like it's what someone looks like. Yeah, it's like Tinker Toys. <laughs> so this Aunt Julia reportedly woke up from her nap and took notice of the blades surrounding her, <laughs> like she was at a fucking freak show, right? Like, circus. And of course, she also took notice of a young Ted standing very close by pointing at her and smiling. Ew! Oh, God. At three. At three? I don't know. There's something about creepy children that, like, scare me more than creepy adults. Like, if you ever watch, like, a horror movie and, like, the child's the creepy one, like, it freaks me out even more. He's just standing there pointing, like, ha, ha. (laughs) (laughs) Like, net. What is it? Uh... Nelson. Oh, yeah. yeah Nelson. The, yeah, and then his mom's like, <laughs> with her raspy-ass voice, like, ha, <laughs> 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 Creepy. <laughs> no, that's awful, though. 
So according to Julia, this actually happened a few times, and she would later state about this, quote, again, the knives, quote, I remember thinking at the time that I was the only one who thought it was strange. Nobody did anything. Ew. Like, how like helpless. Even, you're like, you're three-year-olds fucking terrorizing me yeah. multiple times with knives. <laughs> And they're like, oh, boys, hey, something <laughs> weird happened over here. Yeah. Uh, this guy's threatening me with knives. He's like, three. Kids will be kids. <laughs> in the same article as this quote, Dr. Lewis was known as saying, quote, only in very seriously traumatized children who have either themselves been the victims of extraordinary abuse or have witnessed extreme violence among family members would engage in actions like that. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's taught. At three. It's, That's so fucking sad, though. It's taught. It's taught. You don't just fucking... Think of that as a yeah. three-year-old. Like, yeah. Three-year-olds eat, like, roly-polies. For real. Along with the violent outbursts and animal abuse from his grandfather, he was also not shy about keeping graphic pornography about the home. Here we fucking go again. I'm the man in the house. And then you're going to blame porn for <laughs> yeah. him being a murderer later. <laughs> That's what, not I what can't have about. it on the back of my toilet tank? <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so Ted was noted as having access to these magazines and such at like a very young age and like all throughout his childhood. Like he, it, it got to the point where like once he was old enough, he would like seek them out. Yeah. Because he wanted to see it again. Yeah. yeah. Ted would later speak very warmly about his grandparents. Hmm. And he would say that he, quote, identified with, respected, and clung to his grandfather. It was respected. No, that was that's something. That's that, a trauma bond. That's a trauma bond. It's yeah. a fucking trauma bond. Yeah, it's it's. I need to be accepted by somebody, and yeah. you seem like you know what you're doing yeah. because you're the authoritarian here. Yeah. So I'm gonna latch on to you because you're my only frame of reference here, and I have no other option but to like whip up in a shape. Essentially, he's the only man. That yeah. He, yeah, the only man. Ugh. And here's the another um, example of Bundy always kind of counteracting what he says because mm-hmm. he would also tell attorneys later. That Samuel, his grandfather, was a tyrannical bully who beat his wife and dog, was extremely racist and violent to people and animals. But I respected him. Like, I respect the fuck out of him, though. Yeah. So I don't know if he was <laughs> like, saying, what? like, he's all of these things and I respect him, yeah. or he's all of these things but I respect him. Or it's just you know? dependent on his mood, probably. Exactly. I mean, yeah, when it benefits him. Yes. Ted had also stated that one time he remembered Samuel throwing Julia down a flight of stairs for oversleeping. For oversleeping? Yes. But then, like, I don't want to say it makes sense, but I can see in Ted's mind, like, he sees his dad treating his aunt this way, and then he goes and does the knife thing. Like, she's clearly the target here, so she's the one. She's the one that we're all targeting here. Yeah, Yeah. and that's so awful. So, still talking about the grandfather, Ted would say that Samuel was known for speaking out loud and to seemingly nobody, like, on occasion. Mm-hmm. So perhaps mental illness, perhaps just like rage. Yeah, just kind of like yelling in the air. This is Ted's account. Yes. Do you and think he, maybe he's just like pissed and he's under his breath? Yeah, and maybe. Maybe. And he also said that Samuel was once questioned about the paternity of Ted, and he flew into a rage, according to Ted. So someone asked, like, "Who's that boy's father?" And mm-hmm. the grandfather like freaked out. Yeah, but, okay, so two things. So, do you think that Ted said that about his grandfather so it looked like that there was a family history of mental illness, A? And then, B, do you think that the question about Ted's father, do you think that he was really saying maybe he didn't want the identity of his mother to be revealed and that's why he was upset? I don't know. So, I don't think that he made up anything mental illness-wise about his grandparents because I think that I was... 
I obviously didn't put that in here, but there was, like, other accounts, like, from neighbors and stuff that, like, recognized Samuel's anger or rage, at least. Okay. I don't know what the story was behind his dad or his grandpa getting upset when asked about the paternity of Ted, because Mm. that's all it said. Like, it didn't say, like, why he got upset or if he said anything. It just said that he he flew into a rage. And again, this is all Ted just, like, mumbo-jumbo just speaking. Yeah. He could not have... That could have never, never fucking happened, happened, and we don't know. Yeah. Elliot Roger in the Starbucks cup. Exactly. <laughs> that sounds like a book title. Right. The Elliot Roger in the Starbucks cup. <laughs> so, Ted would also later describe his grandmother as a timid and obedient woman who underwent electroconvulsive therapy for depression <sighs> and feared to leave the home towards the end of her life. I need electrotherapy after fucking hearing after, that. That's ridiculous. We're barely in. We're barely in. That's ridiculous. <laughs> this is just... He's three. He's three. <laughs> Like, this is, I told My you. My third birthday. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Shit. Electroshock therapy for... Depression. Depression. Yeah. Okay. And, again, uh, towards the end of her life, he said that her agoraphobia got, like, really bad. I'm sure. So, around the age of three, again, in 1950, Louise had grown tired of her parents' treatment of Ted, especially her father, and she decided that her and Ted would both leave the home together. Just to be clear, I keep switching between Eleanor and Louise. She went by Louise, so I'm probably going to refer to her as that okay. from now on. Okay. But I don't know. You know, I'm, like, really particular about, like, the first real name. Like, right. Like, Ted. <laughs> so I'm yeah. going to call him Ted the whole time. Yeah, he's not going to be Teddy. He's not going to be Bundy. Yeah. Yeah. So Louise and Ted alike would go by the surname Nelson in order to avoid questions, and the two would move to Tacoma, Washington, and stay with her cousins, Alan and Jane Scott. Okay. Ted was noted as being very upset by the move and did not care for their new home or lifestyle. Mm. I mean, he's three. Why would you want to move away? Yeah. If you're three, you don't understand what that means. In 1951, so a year later, Louise met a hospital cook by the name of Johnny Culpepper Bundy at an adult singles night at Tacoma's First Methodist Church. Culpepper. Love that. Ready for the next line? No. The two would quickly get married. (laughs) (laughs) The following year, and they would formally adopt Ted, changing his last name to Bundy permanently. Okay. It was known that Ted was very upset and jealous of this relationship, and he actually once threw a public tantrum in a Sears, wetting his pants as part of the production. Again, (laughs) he's fucking three, so... Yeah. Yeah, Just whatever, yeah, whatever (laughs) will come out to shit himself. (laughs) Despite this outburst, Johnny and Louise would go on to have four more children together, and as much as Johnny tried to include Ted in their activities, Ted and him just did not have a good relationship. Mm -hmm. He just despised him. He's like, I don't... Despised him is what I meant to say. He just didn't care. Ted, not the dad. Whoa, Ted, not the dad. Ted, not the dad. That happens to me a lot at the end of the day. Ted was known as always wanting expensive designer clothing that Johnny simply could not afford, and Ted despised him for not being able to give him anything and everything he wanted. And he's what? He's, like, five. He's, this is, like, growing up. Oh, they were just growing up. While, I yeah. see. Okay. Ted would frequently fantasize about being adopted by Western stars Roy Rogers and Dale Evans because they <laughs> would be able to give him the things that he wanted. Is this Elliot Roger? That's so weird. Yeah. Elliot Roger was very much like, oh, my dad chose this modest life over... When dude was, like, art director for the fucking Hunger Games. Yeah. Like, it's like, what? (laughs) It's a modest. How much rich, like, how much more rich do you want to be? He wanted to be really rich. For real. As Ted tells it, his childhood was, quote, a mix of football practice, fishing off the pier with his friends, and sharing countless adventures with his closest pals. It was the summer of 69. That's what I have in my head. 
It wasn't, but... <laughs> it wasn't yet, but it just sounds so classic American, yeah. you know? So one of his childhood neighbors growing up, her name is Sandy Holt, she would describe Ted much differently, stating, quote, He liked to terrify people. He liked to be in charge. He liked to inflict pain and suffering and fear. So he's like, I was just going down to the soda fountain with my buddies, and we were just skipping rocks in the pond. And she's like, uh, no, you were torturing people. Yeah, I saw you swing that cat by its tail. Yes. (laughs) She would continue on during an interview. Quote, it was not a happy childhood for Ted. He wasn't one of the guys. He was skinny and very girly looking, and he only accentuated it by wearing really short shorts. And boys didn't wear short shorts. Girls did. What year was this? Uh, I think this is, like, in the 50s, like, maybe, like, late 50s. Okay, so I guess it wasn't that common for men to be wearing short shorts. Maybe he thought he was European. Maybe he was going for the European look. Maybe so. Yeah, maybe it was fashionable. It was at, I don't know. I don't know. It was in Milan. He was just trying to be cool. (laughs) Yeah. So Sandy would continue to live close to Ted until the age of 15, and she would also state, quote, For a long time, he had a horrible speech impediment, and some words he just plain couldn't pronounce, so it was very hard to understand him. Oh, I know, it, like, sucks, dude. It's, like, breaking my heart. This guy's got zero chance of survival here. She would also recall one of Ted's particularly violent acts as a child. Like, the knives weren't enough? I'm sorry. This is worse. Okay. Quote, He hung one of the stray cats in the neighborhood from one of the clotheslines in the backyard, doused it in lighter fluid, and set it on fire, and I heard that cat squealing. And by the time somebody got out there with a hose, the cat was gone. That was just too much shock for the poor thing. Yeah. End quote. End quote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it wasn't in there. Oh, yeah, it was me. Awful. Like, when you said that he hung a cat up on a wire, I thought you meant he, like, the like cat was hung, dead. Yeah. No, it was That's alive. He, like, hung it by, like, its legs or something, I think. Horrid. Yeah. That is fucking appalling. Yeah outside in like the front yard like just in the neighborhood like no one fucking is around like, let me guess no one did anything oh, get, fucking no of course not <sighs> sandy would go on to comment on ted's bullying of young kids in the neighborhood woods stating quote he'd take them out there and strip them down take their clothes you'd hear them screaming for blocks i mean no matter where we were here we could hear them screaming what and nothing was done again so he There's would like, take, boys will be boys. Yeah, he would like take younger boys into the woods, strip them naked, and then run away with their clothes, and then they would be naked having to like get home. I mean, we used to kind of do that when people would skinny dip, but in the middle of the night, but and they you're willingly all skinny dip. <laughs> you're all the same age, yeah. and it's funny to throw somebody's clothes like it's like a parent trap moment. Yeah, <laughs> where they have to run all the way up, you know, towards yeah. the cars to get that's their clothes. different though. That's not like hazing. That's it's not, not children. All fun yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, that's awful. Yeah, it's terrible. The refusal to make nice with his new family and friends caused Ted, caused Ted to experience more severe mental health issues around this time as well. So I'm sure you've heard me say Dr. Lewis a bunch of times. She's going to keep coming up. So just okay. remember that's the psychiatrist in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So it was around this time that Dr. Lewis hypothesized that Ted's childhood in Tacoma was riddled by a bipolar mood disorder causing random and sometimes violent mood swings. Hmm. So very young mental illness. Hypo- hypothesization by um, hypothetization, however you say that word, by a doctor. Hypothesis. 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 <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Other psychiatrists would later agree that Ted suffered from a mood disorder, something that they would bring to trial way later on. Okay. Ted's social life was also lacking in school, and according to some peers, he was teased a lot for his speech impediment and the fact that he could not keep up with his fellow male classmates. 
Ted would ultimately hear the rumors that were being talked about him later in life and comment, quote, I hear this, that I used to jump out from behind bushes and scare my friends, and I mean, come on, give me a break. Jumping out from behind bushes was never my thing. People, I know, quote, people won't want to feel like they've been fooled, like they know someone and yet they didn't know them. People are fishing around. They want a hook. They want a smoking gun. They want cause and effect and it's not going to be there. End quote. So he thinks that because somebody testified that he would jump out and scare people when he was behind a bush meant that they were saying like falsehoods about him yes. and this is this is not come on i would never do it's that. one of those things where he's like yeah Why i strangled weird? all those people but i would never fucking yeah. hide behind a bush that's so dumb i burnt like, a live cat on a fucking clothes hanger yeah i did that a clothesline i did that but i jumping out of bushes not my style <laughs> like <laughs> why are you worried about that he's essentially bragging exactly. which is gross he's like that's like petty like that's, that's like not cool enough beneath me. me it's beneath me Although Ted was described as shy and introverted, he was also described as narcissistic and egotistical, which is not really things that you see paired a lot. Yeah. (laughs) He considered himself above the law when he reached his teen years, like they usually do. Well, he had never, nothing had ever happened. That's true. Nothing had ever come to fruition. (laughs) He's been terrorizing people for fucking years, killing cats and all kinds of neighborhood animals and torturing the kids and no trouble. Of course he grew up that way. And at the age of 15, he would have been involved, excuse me, in criminal experiences while stealing an array of items. So he stated around this time that he would roam around his neighborhood and pick through trash barrels looking for any photos of naked women that he could find. <laughs> like, yeah, you're going to find that in yeah, every person's trash, exactly. right? I'm going to be, yeah. <laughs> I'm going through trash barrels yeah. to look for porn. And if they're decent <laughs> photos, why would they be the trash? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no one's throwing that shit out. They didn't have porn establishments back there. That's where you go look for the trash. Yeah, right. I don't know. He would also admit to biographers, again, Stephen and Hugh from earlier, that he would peruse any detective magazines, crime novels, and true crime documentaries he could get his hands on, and especially lean towards ones that depicted sexual violence and deceased women. Okay. So he would, like, research true crime, like we're doing right now. Yeah. I don't know. However, in a differing story, he would later tell biographer and true crime writer Anne Rule, remember his old co-worker, there's these... Three sets of people are going to keep coming up. Sure. So, yeah, I'm just going to yeah. keep reminding y'all. Which is great. I like the way that you've structured it, honestly, because yeah. it's, it's definitely, we're getting all of the detail for that period of his life. We yeah. don't find this out later, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he would tell Anne Rule, again, in a differing story, that he, quote, never, ever read fact detective magazines and shuddered at the thought that anyone would. So you're telling these biographers that you did that, and now you're telling Anne that you didn't, and that's yeah. beneath him. That's beneath me. Again, completely differing. I have my own brain. <laughs> I don't need to look at that shit. Right. <laughs> In the same interview with Stephen and Hugh, he would admit that he consumed large quantities of alcohol and would, quote, canvas the community late at night in search of undraped windows where he could observe women undressing or, quote, whatever else could be seen. <laughs> Like chicks clipping their toenails. Yeah, like what are you looking? <laughs> what are you for looking for? <laughs> it was around this time that some experts say Ted began to escalate his criminal activity due to changes in his mind. Psychologist Al Carlisle stated about these acts: "Quote, he started fantasizing about women he saw while window peeping or elsewhere, and mimicking the accents of some politicians he listened to on the radio." What? In essence, he was fantasizing about being someone else, someone important. 
end quote. Okay. And if anybody listening knows about Ted Bundy, you know that he's super into politics later in his life. So it's just interesting that he commented on that at didn't a young age. I don't, I, I'm sure you're going to touch on it at some point, but didn't he want to be a lawyer? Yeah, he went to law school. Oh, he did? Actually, Damn. Yeah. Right. Well, he didn't finish law school. Spoilers. <laughs> Criminologist and doctor Scott Bond would recognize that this time of early stalking correlated with other serial murderers, such as Dennis Rader, or BTK, and Joseph D'Angelo, or the Golden State Killer. Panty Rader. Because they both did these things as well. Mm -hmm. Dennis Panty Rader. Dennis Panty Rader. Never forget it. He would state about this, quote, It's a violation of privacy, and it does lend itself to power and control. Bundy and BTK were all about power and domination and control. End quote. Had to get that out. In some interviews, Ted would describe himself as a purposeful loner as an adolescent, stating that he, quote, chose to be alone, end quote, because he was unable to understand interpersonal relationships. I guess, and that makes sense because, as we'll find out in part two, but I'll kind of pepper in here now, is that a lot of people have diagnosed him as a psychopath. Right. Which is, like, not really, like, it's kind of like a redundant statement. But that... If the fact that he can say, like, I don't understand interpersonal relationships and just know that to be true, but also, like, admit it, like, that's yeah. honestly, like, a sign of being, like, an like, yeah. empathy-less person. Well, that's interesting that he says that because he tries to emulate it. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, oh, he yeah. knows he's not capable of doing it, but he emulates it really well. Well, and is, that's yeah, one of the... That's scary. Like, that's one of the scary things about him is that he can fake it. Yeah. And, like, a lot of those emotions are really hard to fake, but not for him. Right. He would claim that he had no real idea of how to obtain a real friendship with peers, stating, quote, I didn't know what made people want to be friends. I didn't know what underlay social interactions, end quote. Hmm. Despite these claims, classmates of Ted's at Woodrow Wilson High School would state that Ted was, quote, well-known and well-liked, calling him a, quote, medium-sized fish in a large pond. Interesting. Right? They're they like, yeah, he's him like a twerp, but cool they were dude. like, yeah, no, he just seemed like an average person. Yeah, I mean, exactly. you know, he's pretty making his way downtown, walking <laughs> fast, faces fast. He's like, I can't make any friends. <laughs> <laughs> Sandy, childhood friend or childhood neighbor, would recall about this time, quote, he tried to fool you and lie to you. He wasn't athletic. He wanted to be the number one in the class, but he wasn't, end quote. Hmm. So again, like deceitful. He's yeah. like, they're making up lies about me. <laughs> Ted would later state as well, there's a lot of quotes, sorry, quote, some people perceive me as being shy and introverted. I didn't go to dances. I didn't go on the beer drinking outings. I was a pretty, you might call me straight, but not a social outcast in any way. Like he's saying he's like straight edge. Yeah. 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 End quote. Well, that was an end quote before. (laughs) He didn't say like he's saying he's straight edge. (laughs) Such a mainstream term. Well, not really anymore. Yeah. As far as girls around this time goes, Ted would later state, quote, It wasn't that I disliked women or were afraid of them. It was just that I didn't seem to have an inkling as to what to do about them. End quote. God, it's so Elliot, Elliot Roger. Roger. I'm so sorry. Like, I, ke- I hate comparing the two so much, but... It sounds... It, I was thinking that, too, when I was researching this. I was like, what the I hell? I feel that way about Elliot Roger, that it, I don't think that it was that he had an actual attraction to women. I think that it was the idea behind yes, it. Like, what so made sense societally, and then for him not to... to he built it up in his head that he was being rejected. Yeah. But he was, you know, and then... But uh, Timothy McVeigh was also that way, too, remember, where he's like, no, this is a decision I'm making. It has oh, nothing yeah. to do with people not being attracted to yeah. me. Yeah. So although Ted didn't play any significant sports after not making the school basketball or baseball teams, he was known as being very good at downhill skiing... 
something he would pursue seriously while using stolen equipment and forged lift tickets. Okay. <laughs> so so like he's got a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> while he was in high school, Ted was arrested twice on suspicion of burglary and motor vehicle theft. Hmm. These charges would later be expunged when Ted turned 18 due to current laws at the time. So he had lots of hobbies, not just skiing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's breaking, burglaring. Burglaring. <laughs> Tur- turd burglaring. <laughs> yeah. Ted burglaring. <laughs> Ted burglaring. <laughs> After graduating high school in 1965, Ted went on to attend the University of Puget Sound for one year before transferring to the University of Washington to study Chinese. Interesting. Is he really into... Just Chinese culture? I guess. I'm not sure. I didn't really elab- elaborate. That was, like, something he was really huh. interested in, at least studying the language. Yeah. In 1967, he would become romantically involved with fellow classmate Diane Edwards, who is referred to commonly in his documentaries as Stephanie Brooks. Okay. So, Why? Uh, an alias, kind of like oh. a pseudonym, I guess. Just to, But now that it's public record, I, I felt see. like it was appropriate for yeah. me to use her real name. But I will be referring to her as Stephanie because it's the most common name that she's known by. Okay. So anybody that's listening that's like, Diane, that doesn't make sense. That's not the person. It's Stephanie. Okay. So Stephanie was described as a beautiful young girl with long, dark hair that she wore in a middle part. We all know that's like the classic Ted Bundy thing. Is it? He loves that. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. He was all about the long, dark hair with the middle part. Mm -hmm. And I'll just go ahead and say this. At his execution plot twist there was women outside that like purposely like did their hair like, <gasps> like that dyed because it they and... wanted to like look like his victims like it was really gross oh like like a fan club yes ew i yes. thought they meant like <laughs> like haunting him no you know oh gross yeah they like loved him ew i'll talk about that in part two okay, okay. In detail. <laughs> i don't like that i know Trusted Health Products makes a variety of incredible products that you can feel good about. Their oral care, skin care, and nutritional products focus on quality first. Trusted Health Products are GMO and additive-free and are 100% pure ingredients that feed and nourish your body to help you look and feel your best. Click the link in the show notes and receive 10% off your first purchase. Trusted Health Products, products that you can feel good about. While Ted fell very hard and fast for Stephanie, she seemed to view the relationship as more of, like, a casual affair. Still dating Stephanie, but not believing he was in the right spot, Ted would shortly drop out of college and return back to the East Coast in 1968. He would work a series of minimum wage jobs, but quickly found himself very interested in politics and would volunteer at the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign. Hmm. He would also become Arthur Fletcher's driver and bodyguard during his campaign for lieutenant governor of Washington State. Mm-hmm. It's a bodyguard. Scrawny <laughs> about bodyguard. his campaign and be like, "Don't get caught dead not voting for Ted." <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> it's like if you don't vote for me, like you're gonna be sorry. <laughs> The same year, Ted would receive a scholarship to study Chinese at Stanford University that summer. Beginning in August, Ted would attend the 1968 Republican National Convention in Miami as a Rockefeller delegate. Don't be a cunty. Vote for Bundy. <laughs> cunty. <laughs> Shortly after this, Stephanie would ultimately break up with Ted just a year into their relationship, describing his immaturity and lack of ambition as the main reasons. Mm-hmm. 
Dr. Lewis would later hypothesize that this may have been, quote, the pivotal time in his development, end quote. Again, the breakup. Ted was absolutely devastated by this breakup, and he decided to move to Colorado at first, and then further east, first to Arkansas to visit relatives, and then to Philadelphia, where he enrolled in Temple University to study law. Okay. So, very clearly trying to find a place that he feels like he belongs. Yeah. Right? This is around the time that it's thought that Ted found out the true nature of his conception, or at least that his, quote, sister was actually his mother. So, again, when he moved back, he was kind of, like, with relatives and found the birth certificate. Yeah. That story's kind of, you know, iffy. Yet another failed attempt at a degree would leave Ted traveling back to Washington by the fall of 1969. After returning, he would meet a woman by the name of Elizabeth Klopfer. She was commonly referred to by multiple names in his various documentaries, similarly to Stephanie, including Meg Anders, Beth Archer, and Liz Kendall. So he is just, he just gives them aliases or what? I don't think so. I think it was like originally pr- to protect their identities, I see. but now that it's public record so many years later, then we know their, their real names. I see, okay. Or who knows, it could have very well been Bundy using different names for these women because he didn't want people to know his true story. You exactly. Know, and yeah, I don't know exactly why, but mm-hmm. I just know I want to give all the information I can. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to refer to her as Liz. Okay. So Liz was a single mother from Ogden, Utah, who was working as a secretary at the UW School of Medicine. She was raising a three-year-old daughter named Molly when she met Ted, and he would quickly become a father figure to the young girl. Hmm. Unfortunately, the cycle of abuse did not end with Ted, and he would be accused years later by Molly of sexually and physically assaulting her from a young age. She would also state that Ted hit her in the face, knocking her down, put her at risk of drowning involved her in indecent exposure, and would commonly disguise sexual assault as accidents or games. What? Which is fucked up. In mi- sorry. I'm sorry. I, was, yeah, <laughs> no. I had to react one more yeah, time. No. Fuck. In mid-1970, Ted would re-enroll in the University of Washington, seemingly changing his tune to goal-oriented and focused. Oh. This time, he would be pursuing a psychology degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He would be able to turn his college career around and ended up becoming a highly regarded honor student among the professors. In 1971, he would begin a new job at Seattle's Suicide Hotline Crisis Center. And while working there, he would meet fellow co-worker Anne Rule. It all comes full circle. It, it's all coming the together. The author from <laughs> Obviously, this name sounds familiar. As we know, Anne was an old co-worker of uh, Bundy's. She was a former police officer at the time as well, but was an aspiring true crime writer who would later become very well known for her biography of Ted entitled The Stranger Beside Me. Hmm. It's actually really good. Didn't they make a movie on that too, I think? I think so, yeah. yeah. This would not become apparent to Anne until much later, however, and she admitted to not seeing anything disturbing about Ted's personality at first, and in fact referred to him as, quote, kind, solicitous, and empathetic. Okay. Unquote. After graduating with his psychology degree in 1972, Ted immediately joined Governor Daniel J. Evans's re-election campa- campaign. Ugh, hard, that's a hard sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. Part of his job included posing as a college student and shadowing Evans' opponent, former Governor Albert Rosalini. Hmm. He would record his speeches and return them to Evans' campaign for analysis, which is like that's sl- haunting. Like that's like like. What's it like sly? Like, you know, like, yeah. Due to his, yeah, sneaky. 
Due to his great helpfulness, Ted was appointed to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee by Evans himself. Oh my god. Crime Prevention Crime. Committee. <laughs> Who else was like that? Somebody else was like that. BTK. Oh, BTK, yeah. He was part of Neighborhood Watch, right? Remember he, like, arrested, like, Paula Dean's dog? Not Paula Dean. What's her name? Uh, dog? Barbara Walters. Remember he, like, gave her a ticket because her dog was, like, on the oh, I was just joking. Yeah. I was arrested. Baba. I don't want Paula Dean. What the fuck? Paula Dean. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the barefoot contestant? I have no idea. Oh, okay. After Evans was reelected, he would hire Ted as an assistant to Ross Davis, chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. Davis recalled thinking very highly of Ted and described him as, quote, smart, aggressive, and a believer in the system, end mm-hmm. quote. Yeah, you just want a fucking follower. Like, yeah. that's all you want. Yeah. Someone that's not going to question you. In early 1973, despite average LSAT scores, Ted was accepted into the law schools of UPS and the University of Utah. I don't know, UPS had a law school. I'm kidding. It's Seattle University School of Law. Oh, okay. So they didn't have to wear brown shorts. Yeah. (laughs) I thought that too. I was like, what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) What the hell is that? (laughs) So again, he had like average LSAT scores, but he was able to get into two of these schools, mostly due to highly recommendation letters, highly strong recommendation letters from both Evans and Davis Hmm. and several professors from the University of Washington. Yeah. In the summer of 1973, Ted went on a business trip to California with the Republican Party, and who would he run into but his old girlfriend, Stephanie. Mm. Stephanie was so surprised when she reconnected with the man in front of her. Gone was this lack of motivation, and this was a whole new look for Ted. Stephanie jumped at the opportunity to rekindle their relationship, and Ted had no reservations about it himself. Yeah. He didn't want to break up in the first place. Ted would begin to see Stephanie again, all the while maintaining his relationship with Liz mm-hmm. and her child. Okay, it's like, what, uh, what's his name? Fernando, Fernando. Raymond Fernandez? Raymond Fernandez, oh. yeah. Sorry, <laughs> Fernando. 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 We're going to just break out into Lady Gaga. <laughs> That's Alejandro. Oh, okay. My bad. <laughs> Fernando, Alejandro. Yeah. Sounds similar. Yeah. While he was attending school, Ted would frequently see Stephanie, and she would even come visit him numerous times in Seattle and stay with him. Hmm. The two would even discuss getting married, and at one point, he even introduced Stephanie to Ross Davis as his fiance. All the while dating Liz. All the way, yeah, yeah, exactly. In January of 1974, Ted abruptly cut off all contact with Stephanie. Her phone calls and letters were left unanswered. Oh, I'd be pissed. I'd be fucking pissed. She would continue to try and contact him for nearly a month until she finally got through. Once he answered, Stephanie demanded to know why he had cut contact off with her so suddenly and without explanation. I figured it would be the girlfriend that would answer the phone. Classic. Ted was noted as responding in a flat, calm voice. Quote, Diane, I have no idea what you mean. I have and no just idea. hung up just, the phone. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yes. Ah, uh, uh, I'd be so fucking pissed. She would never hear from Ted again after I would this. shit in a paper bag and light it on fire on his yeah. phone stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm surprised she didn't try to go to his house. Like, yeah. she had stayed with him so many times, you know? It's true. When questioned years later about this, Ted's response was, quote, I just wanted to prove to myself that I could have married her. Oh! <gasps> Oh my god, that's so fucked up. It's so manipulative. That's so right? fucked up. I hate that. I hate that so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, my whole body is like, it's so tense right yeah, now. That's oh. disgusting, right? Just to prove that I could. Fuck. Just to see if I could. Stephanie would disagree, stating that she believed that Ted had deliberately planned the entirety of rekindling, 
the relationship and breaking up with her in order to get back at her for leaving him years prior. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it at all. I don't either. (sighs) Around this same time, Ted had begun skipping classes at law school, and by April, he had stopped attending entirely. This is so strange to me, because it's like he was doing so well with the politics, and then all, it's like a fucking switch flipped, and all of a sudden, he's like trying to get back at his girlfriend or whatever, and then dropping out of school again. It's very interesting that you say that, because even when he went into school, it was very like, I'm going to be a politician, I'm going to be a lawyer, and it's just, it's interesting, and it's it's kind of happened before where we've seen this, where as soon as someone moves, they start a brand new life, yes. new career, everything, and he's done it at least twice now. Yes, but he hasn't moved this time. He hasn't moved, but he's moved, like, relationships. That's and true. And he's moved colleges, you know what I mean? That's true. Yeah. Around this time as well, young women began to disappear all along the Pacific Northwest. So we're going to talk about Ted's victims. There is a lot that goes into his life at the time. If it's anything, like, for the sake of brevity, I'm not going to put every single fucking detail because this is Mm -hmm. a long case. But if there's anything that we need to know, it'll probably be in part two because right now, like, for the end of this episode, we're just going to talk about victims. Okay. So just get ready. (laughs) Just buckle in. Ted Bundy's first known and confirmed victim was killed in 1974, but he was actually suspected of earlier killings. In the middle of the night on August 31st, 1961, 8-year-old Anne Marie Burr disappeared from her Tacoma home. 1961? At the time, a 14-year-old Ted Bundy lived a few miles away. It is suspected that he had been spying on people's homes that night and saw an opportunity in the form of this girl that he could not resist due to his violent tendencies escalating. At the Burr home, an unlocked front door, an open window, and a footprint were among the few clues left, and Anne's parents and sister were also in the home when she vanished. Anne's mother would comment that she felt like it was very likely that her daughter had known her abductor, and it is thought that Ted may have met Anne while on his newspaper route, or even visiting an uncle who lived in her neighborhood. So, I mean, it had a shoe print. How big was the shoe? Well, yeah. Was it, it a 14, 14-year-old size shoe? Yeah. I don't know what 14-year-olds wear. My bad. <laughs> the fact that there were other people in the home correlates to some of Ted's later victims' crime scenes, but this is, again, circumstantial. I didn't say it again. Like, I didn't say it earlier, but it's circumstantial. I think I had a size... Nine or ten when I was 14. Same. I take back what I said. The same shoe size that I have now. Yeah. <laughs> Ted would ultimately deny responsibility for Anne's disappearance while taking accountability for others, even when Anne's mother wrote him a letter asking for closure before his execution. Hmm. So it is unclear if he really didn't have anything to do with it or if he was lying, although experts think that if he was responsible for this crime, he may not have been willing to admit that he was because the crime took place while he was still living at home. Okay. So there's, like, one thing they're, like... Because we know he has, like, a weird respect for his grandparents. Yeah. Regardless of what they put him through. Well, and he's already, like, well, I would never hide in that bush, blah, blah, Maybe it wasn't his best job, quote-unquote. Yeah. So he was, like, oh, I'm not even going to take credit for that because it's sloppy or something. Yeah, but it's just very interesting to me because he was all about taking credit for a lot of other shit, you know? Or he keeps that one very personal because it's his first. Exactly. Nonetheless, existing evidence did not contain enough comparable DNA to be a match to Ted. It is also noted that he told different stories to each and every person he spoke with about his early crimes, so unfortunately there's really no way to know what's true and what's false. Yeah. He told attorney and author Polly Nelson that he attempted his first kidnapping in 1969 in Ocean City, New Jersey, but did not kill anyone until sometime in 1971 in Seattle. He told psychologist Art Norman that he killed two women in Atlantic City while visiting family in Philly in 1969. 
He hinted to homicide detective Robert Keppel that he committed a murder in Seattle in 1972 and another murder in 1973 that involved a hitchhiker near Tomwater, but he refused to elaborate. What we know for sure is that Ted Bundy's earliest documented homicides were committed in 1974 when he was just 27 years old, and by his own admission, he had mastered the necessary skills to leave minimal incriminating evidence even before DNA profiling. What's the point of... Okay, so he's not going to admit to killing the little girl, right? The six-year-old. Eight. Eight-year-old. I thought you said she was six. Eight. <laughs> she <laughs> scrolled up, like, <laughs> slightly, silently. <laughs> okay, so the eight-year-old, right? He didn't admit to that, but why would he hint that he committed all these other crimes? Like, he's and not... Just- it's just so th- fucker. Yeah. And I, I keep asking questions like we know the answers, but yeah. only he does. So Well, and that's you know. that's the thing. Like he was in custody for a while before he got executed. So yeah. he had all this time to just fucking make shit up. You know what yeah. I mean? Like he just likes to fuck with people. Like he yeah. likes to toy with people's minds. Hmm. Shortly after midnight on January fourth, nineteen seventy four, around the time that Ted had broken up with Stephanie. He would enter the basement apartment of 18-year-old Karen Sparks, a dancer and student at the University of Washington. In the documentaries, this woman is often referred to as Joni Lenz, Mary Adams, and Terry Caldwell. Ted would begin his assault on Karen by bludgeoning her with a metal rod from her bed frame before sexually assaulting her with what experts believe to have either been the same rod or a metal speculum. Oh, Jesus Christ. This would cause extensive internal damage. Obviously. Ted would leave the home shortly after this, resulting in Karen being badly injured, but alive. Oh my god. She would be rushed to the hospital where she would spend 10 days unconscious, and although she would survive her attack, it would leave her with severe physical disabilities. Oh my god, that's awful. 46 years later, I just got full body heaves. In January of 2020, Karen Sparks spoke out about her attack. She recalled that night, quote, He came into my home, took a frame off of my bed, and smashed my skull. And he probably used the same bed frame and smashed it into my vagina and into my bladder. My bladder was totally split. End quote. Like, being able to say that in an interview. 46 46 years later. 46 years later. So powerful. That is haunting. She then stated that it took nearly 20 hours before her roommate discovered her, stating, quote, Bob thought I was still sleeping. It was horrible for him to find me that way. Could you imagine? I can't even imagine that. I cannot, I cannot even, imagine even imagine that. And especially if you just thought your roommate was sleeping. Yes. You know, and just, I don't know, just having that gut instinct like something was wrong or yeah. something and then checking on that person. Like, well, oh. imagine, thankfully, obviously she's alive, but imagine if she was passed on and then that guilt that he would have felt if she, if he had known she was there for right. 20 hours before he yeah, oh, God, yeah. So awful. well i mean just even then it's kind of just interesting that she would even have a roommate you know yeah. or something i mean just that's just yeah the extent of her injuries resulted in permanent brain damage with significant loss to her vision and hearing she stated quote i have a horrible ringing and roaring in my ears just constant end quote I I know. I have that image of him yelling. I know. In my head, like that rage that she must have seen on his face. Seriously, it's oh, it's haunting. She also stated that she frequently has epileptic epileptic fits following her attack, but she was able to overcome them. Hmm. Following her attack, Karen stated that she quote wanted to keep quiet. I wanted to have my own life in privacy. 
women like us, women that have been attacked, women that have been raped, when they are survivors, they keep their secrets to themselves. I don't know why. We're taught to get on with it. End quote. <sighs> I know, I almost started crying. I know, I literally have to hold my breath. <sighs> Karen waited nearly 50 years to tell her story, a story that her own immediate family did not know until she spoke out. They didn't even know that she had been attacked by Ted Bundy? I think that her, like, maybe her parents and stuff, but her she has children, and her children did not know anything about this until 2020. So it makes sense as to why there was other aliases besides just ones that he would use. Yes. But, but she testified against him in court? No. She didn't speak out she about it until any... 2020. <laughs> I didn't realize that she was... I thought you said, like, like, she went through the court proceedings, but she had never spoke out about it. I might be mistaken. I, I, oh, okay. I haven't gotten to the research oh, where <laughs> the court... So I honestly might be mistaken. Don't quote me on that. Okay. But I will make sure to clarify in part two. Okay. Less than a month later, in the early morning hours of February 1st, 1974, Ted broke into the basement room of Linda Ann Healy, a senior at the University of Washington. Linda spent her extracurricular activities broadcasting the morning radio weather sports for skiers. It's, a wide, it's widely believed that Ted first spotted Linda and some friends at a nearby bar named Dante's Tavern and likely followed them back to their home. He would then wait until all of the women were asleep and would break into the home. Linda was hit over the head in order to subdue her, and Ted carried her unconscious body to his vehicle shortly after. Around 5 a.m. the next morning, one of Linda's roommates woke up to the sound of Linda's alarm clock going off. Hmm. This was not unusual, as Linda was commonly getting up very early to get to her job. The roommate noticed that this was particularly unusual, however, as Linda never slept through her alarm. Mm -hmm. The roommate checked Linda's room, but she was nowhere to be found. She was concerned, however, she just brushed it off, thinking that maybe somehow Linda just forgot to turn the alarm off. Mm -hmm. As the day went on, Linda's roommates, and now family members, were growing in their concerns. The roommates had since investigated the home and noticed that the back door was unlocked and that there was blood on Linda's bed. Mm. They would phone police in the evening on February 1st, but unfortunately, it would not be of any help. The details of what happened after Ted abducted Linda are not known, However, what we do know is that Linda was beaten so badly that it caused her death. Ted would then dress the woman's body in blue jeans, a white blouse, and boots, and leave her remains on Taylor Mountain. He dressed her. He, like, changed her clothes. Hmm. This would become one of many areas that Ted Bundy would leave his victims' bodies on Taylor Mountain. During the first six months of 1974, female college students were disappearing at a rate of about one per month. Could you imagine? Could you imagine living in that fucking time? I know I've said that a billion times this episode. Could you imagine? But, I mean, it's just... Yeah. I can't even begin to comprehend what that must feel like. Yeah. Having that anxiety on a daily basis. Seriously. On March 12th, 1974, this is all going to be 1974, 19-year-old Evergreen State College student Donna Gale Manson vanished. She was last seen leaving her dorm at the college in Olympia, 60 miles southwest of Seattle heading to attend a jazz concert on campus, but she would never arrive. So this is 60 miles southeast, or southwest, excuse me, of Seattle. Like, okay. he traveled. Yeah. Before she left for the night, her roommates, her roommates noticed that Donna seemed very focused on her appearance, even going as far as to change outfits several times. Hmm. This led the roommates to think that perhaps she was meeting a guy while she was out, but this was not confirmed by Donna. Unfortunately, this gave way for her disappearance to go unnoticed for a short period of time. 
because they thought she might have spent the night at this yeah. man's house or something. Makes sense. It seems as though Donna was abducted by Ted while on the way to campus to attend this event, and it is believed that he was somehow able to coax her into his vehicle, something that would also become a frequent part of his M.O. Donna's route from her dorm to the campus has since been mapped out, and it suggests that she took a route, I said route and then route, (laughs) route that would have taken no longer than two minutes to walk. What? So between her dorm and campus, two minutes she was abducted. Wow. This led investigators to believe that Ted absolutely knew that he wanted to abduct her and knew her schedule. Yeah. Or, you know, because she was getting dressed up or whatever, like, I'm going to pick you up for a date. Let me pick you up for a date. Meet me right here. Yeah. Yeah. Ted would frequently park his yellow Volkswagen Beetle in quiet areas, away from any potential witnesses, and since Donna's walk was through kind of like a wooded or like kind of vegetated area, this was his plan. Do you think that he went to go, like, attack her in the woods? Sorry, I keep interrupting. No, I don't Not in the woods, actually it's kind know. of a wooded area. But, like, he parked away and then knew she was going to be trying to meet him or find him. I maybe. don't think she knew him. Or maybe... You don't? I don't know, because he had so many different MOs. Like, he would pretend like he was injured and he needed help. Or That's he true. would befriend someone and, and ask them on a date. Or he would just abduct someone that he knew her routine because he had been stalking her. Oh, it's just, there's so many different options that it yeah. could have been. And let's be honest, like, it's the 70s. People are not very afraid of hitchhiking or mm-hmm. getting in cars with strangers. That's not really a concern at Especially this point. Especially in, uh, well, this is Seattle area, yeah. Said, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, California. California, especially, yeah. When Donna failed to return to her dorm that night, her roommates did not believe anything was amiss. Donna was a free spirit who would often hitchhike and was very independent, so it did not strike her roommates as odd when she didn't immediately return. Mm -hmm. However, six days later, they figured that she should have been home at some point, and they began to worry. The roommates would report her missing on March 18th, but news of her disappearance did not hit the media until March 22nd. Okay, four days later. The newspaper article reads, quote, Olympia, foul play is suspected of the disappearance of a co-ed from the Evergreen State College, according to the Thurston County Sheriff's Department. Inspector Charles Grafe said Friday that Donna G. Manson, 19, of Auburn, has been missing from a dorm at the college for 10 days. Miss Manson told roommates that she was going to attend a jazz concert March 12th at the college. She failed to appear at the concert and has not been heard from since. The missing girl is the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Lyle E. Manson of Auburn. End quote. I just think it's interesting to have, like, the news article lined out. Following Donna's disappearance, search teams combed the 990-acre campus on four separate occasions, each time with up to 200 people assisting. Unfortunately, no remains or evidence were ever located. No evidence either? I was expecting at least, like, a shoe or a bracelet or something. Nothing? Wicked smart. Wicked smart. Like, he really is. Because Donna had an interest in, quote, unusual subjects such as alchemy and death, police actually initially believed that her disappearance was really a suicide. What? Yeah. But they didn't have any... They didn't have any reference point. They were like, well, she was into, like, really weird stuff, so, like, she probably (laughs) committed suicide. I'm serious. That's also very classic 70s. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, everything's Satanism. Yeah. Yeah. However, this was quickly ruled out, and she would later be confirmed as the third victim of Ted Bundy. On April 17th, Suzanne Elaine Rancourt was on her way to her dorm after an evening advisors meeting at Central Washington State College in Ellensburg, 100 miles southeast of Seattle. So farther. Susan had put in a load of laundry before leaving for the meeting, and when she did not return to retrieve her items, it became clear that something was amiss. 
According to investigators, the most possible scenario is that Ted spotted Susan while she was leaving the meeting at around 10 p.m. Two female students would later come forward and report encounters having to do with the case, one on the night of Susan's disappearance and another from three nights prior. Hmm. They both stated that a man wearing a sling was walking around and asked them for help carrying a load of books to his brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> a sling, like, uh, his arm was, like, in a yeah, sling? Yeah, like his okay. elbow was broken or something. But he, that, yeah, okay, a man, a man in a sling decided to... To go ahead and just carry some bulky-ass items. Yes. It's just funny. So it's thought that he was attempting to abduct one or both of those girls, mm-hmm. and they turned him, they declined his his advance. They were like, oh, yeah. no, sorry, whatever, and they kind of got away. Investigators believe that he did this same act with Susan, whom he dropped his books in front of, mm-hmm. and when this happened, Susan offered to assist him. She was a nice girl. Jesus. This guy. I know. As Susan was leaning into the car trying to put the books in for him... Ted hit her over the head with a crowbar, knocking her unconscious. He then placed her body in the car and drove away. Shortly after she was reported missing, an ad for any information on Susan hit the paper. Quote, 18 years old, white, female, American, height 5 feet 2 inches, weight 118 pounds, blue eyes, blonde shoulder-length hair. Susan was last seen in Ellensburg Wednesday, April 17th at 10 p.m. She has not called home her residence hall at Central Washington State College, any of her known friends, or has been seen with anyone since Wednesday. She was last seen wearing a bright yellow fingertip-length ski jacket, no hood, yellow short sleeve sweater, gray corduroy pants, brown hush puppy-type shoes. If you have last seen Susan or anyone resembling her, please call. End quote. Which, like, that sounds like a dope-ass outfit, honestly. Yeah, it sounded really cute. But... She's blonde, and she has blue eyes, which is very different than his which typical victim. Has, yeah, has been different so far, so no wonder, like, his MO is, like, all over the radar. Yes, exactly. They would also offer a $1,000 reward for any information. Unfortunately, this information would not come for many years later in the form of a contention from one Ted Bundy. Oh, so they never even found her? They did, but, she, but they, they found remains. But it was only because he had said... Uh... I don't know. It's, they, they, a lot of his victims kind of were found together. Some okay. of them he confessed. I think it was after maybe remains were found he confessed. Again, part two. Okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. It's okay. I'm getting ahead. Although the police were quick to retrace Susan's steps, interview people, and contact witnesses, there was no trace of the girl. The same week she went missing, Susan's parents, Dale and Vivian Rancourt, flew in from Anchorage to assist in the search. They made a public statement. Quote, We believe Susan was abducted because she was always a very logical and predictable person. Very predictable. If it was one of my other children, I'd just say, I'd say just stand by. They'll be back in two or three days, but not Susan. She was always very careful. End quote. (sighs) So sad. On May 3rd, police had exhausted all efforts to locate Susan, and they were noticing an eerie trend. In the span of three months, three women had gone missing. All in the Pacific Northwest area all in their late teens to early 20s, and all from college campuses. On May 6th, 20-year-old Roberta Kathleen Parks left her dorm at Oregon State University in Corvallis, 260 miles south of Seattle. So he's, like, all over the place. He's traveling. She was leaving to have coffee with friends at the Memorial Union, but she would never arrive. According to friends and family, Roberta was notably unhappy at the time of her disappearance, as she had been openly fighting with her parents and her boyfriend, and was worrying about her future career. That's sad. I know. 
According to her friends, Roberta's boyfriend, Christy, was pushing for marriage, and she was not nearly as ready as he was. She had even expressed breaking up with him due to the fact that the two wanted different things. Hmm. The day of her attack, Roberta had received news from her sister that her father had had a heart attack, leaving her with an immense feeling of guilt when she remembered that her and her father had had a big argument two days prior. Later that day, she would receive a second phone call from her sister, this time with good news. Her father was likely to survive. It is thought that due to the emotional distress Roberta was experiencing at the time of her abduction, she may have been distracted or kind of off-kilter. Yeah, she probably was, like, just fucking... Yeah. Like, yeah, it it makes your brain foggy. She's... There's a lot going on in her life. While Roberta was on her way to the Memorial Union building, she ran into a friend of hers by the name of Lorraine. Lorraine shared with Roberta that she was on her way to get a hot fudge sundae, (laughs) and this would be the last time that Roberta was seen alive. Later that night, Lorraine noticed that Roberta had not yet returned to her dorm, and she thought this was odd due to Roberta's punctual nature. On top of this, their dorm had a 2 a.m. curfew, and this was well past the time. The following morning, her roommates began to worry when Roberta was still not back. They were hesitant to report her absence to the faculty, however, as they thought she may have just went to blow off some steam, and they didn't want to get her in trouble. Yeah, they didn't want to get her, you know, yeah. The roommates would ultimately decide to report Roberta's absence to the resident advisor when they recalled that, even though they were 250 miles away, young women had been going missing from college campuses. Mm -hmm. So there's differing stories about what happened when Ted met Roberta, but as we know, she would unfortunately not survive this attack. Unfortunately, due to Roberta being abducted so far away from the other women, she would frequently be left out of news outlets when the media would discuss the string of disappearances, and they would not connect her to these crimes for a while. Wow. On June 1st, 22-year-old Brenda Carol Ball was leaving the Flame Tavern in Buren near the SeaTac airport when she was last seen talking to a brown-haired man in the parking lot with his arm in a sling. Hmm. Brenda was a regular at this bar, giving way for her to know many of the employees and patrons. According to witnesses, she was there until closing time, around 2 a.m., and at that time, she had asked a band member that, that she knew if he could give her a ride home. He declined due to the fact that he was driving the opposite way to get to his home. This gave way for Brenda to either ask someone else for a ride or be offered by someone, leaving her, unfortunately, in the grips of Ted. When Brenda failed to return to her apartment, her roommates were not immediately concerned. Brenda had been going out more frequently as her classes had just ended and her roommates believed that she was just taking advantage of the summer. I feel bad for all these roommates because they just seem like nice people. Seriously. (laughs) Gosh. You know, and they're just giving their friend the benefit of the doubt or covering for their friend or, you know, yeah, thinking that somebody's sleeping in late or... As the days turned into weeks, her roommates began to worry. The reason it took them so long for them to realize something may be up was that Brenda was known to go on last-minute trips, and it was not unusual for her to be gone for multiple days at a time. Mm. The roommates began to think the worst when they realized that Brenda didn't pack a bag or really take anything she would need for a vacation. Mm. They decided to contact her bank and ask if she had been withdrawing any money, to which they were told that she was not. Ooh. On June 17th, Brenda's mom filed a report with the police, a missing persons report. Police did not connect Brenda with the other missing women due to her lifestyle and simply thought she was just out partying. Boo! Seriously. Due to this assumption, her case did not become public until August 7th when the newspaper released an ad. Quote, King County Police have disclosed that a seventh young woman, 22-year-old Brenda Carol Ball, has been reported missing. Lieutenant Richard Crace said the Buren's woman was last seen June 1st. 
Miss Ball's mother, Miss Rosebury Nord of Kent, filed a missing person report June 17th. Krask said that the case had not been made public because Miss Ball, quote, was known to be gone from home for a few days at a time, and there seemed to be no link with six other women who have disappeared in the Northwest since January 31st. The only possible connection is that Brenda's physical description was similar to that of two women who disappeared, end quote. There's a lot more, but it pretty much goes on to say, like, yeah, we didn't connect it at first, and we're, like, making a giant excuse for why we're just not telling you about this. Yeah, yeah, guaranteed. Unfortunately, Brenda would become the sixth murder victim of Ted Bundy. The ad, I'm sure, as you heard, said seventh, but he is, she is uh, his sixth victim. Okay. Well, yeah, it said seventh suspected, right? So yeah. there might be one that didn't. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, I found it interesting that they were trying to say, oh, so-and-so, like, Miss Ball's known to not, to go, you know, off for a few days, but this is, like, the 17th? Yeah. 18th? So it's like, what is a few days then, Seriously. Sir? Seriously. That's very, like, presumptuous of me, but I'm going to go ahead and say, sir. Sir. On June 11th, 1974, University of Washington student George Ann Hawkins vanished while while she was walking down a brightly lit alley between her boyfriend's dorm and her sorority house. Oh my gosh, that has to be so close. She had gone to a sorority party on campus the night prior, but did not intend on staying long due to her upcoming final she needed to study for. Before leaving the party, she had told her friend she was going to stop by her boyfriend's dorm and pick up some notes from him. Georgianne was noted as being at her boyfriend's dorm for about an hour and taking off around 1.30 a.m. to head home. One of her boyfriend's fraternity brothers heard the back door shut, and he reached his head out the window, recognizing Georgianne. He shouted, quote, Hey, George, what's happening? The two conversed for about two minutes, and then she continued to walk toward her house, shouting, quote, Adios, jokingly. Mm-hmm. Ted would later admit to police that he lured Georgianne to his car and knocked her unconscious with a crowbar. After handcuffing her, he drove her to Isquatch, where he... Isca... Isca? Isquah. Whoa, I'm leaving that in there. <laughs> so, it's Issaquah, I think, is Issaquah. how you pronounce it. So, he drove her there, where he unfortunately would strangle her, and he spent the entire night with her body, he admitted. Which is escalation, yeah, like, clearly. because he hasn't done that yet. He actually returned to the crime scene the following morning, during an active crime scene investigation... And was able to swipe her earrings and one of her shoes from where he abducted her without being seen. How? Homicide detective Robert Keppel stated about this maneuver, quote, It was a feat so brazen that it astonishes police even today. He had to have been wearing something similar to like like a UC outfit. Not an undercover, but like a detective, you know, like slacks. Yeah. With a polo or something, you know? He de- oh, that's insane. That's some Dexter shit. That's some Dexter shit. That's, wow. That's where we're stopping. <laughs> that's where we're stopping? Yes. <laughs> you were, like, going on and on. I was like, oh my that's goodness. Oh my, my notes. Wow. Yeah. So, recap, because that was a long episode. Bundy has now committed seven murders that we know of, and he's going to continue. He's going to continue on. When we come back for part two, we will finish off explaining his crimes in detail. Mm -hmm. We will talk about, of course, his capture, his trial, his very serious mental health issues, and ultimately his execution. Wow. Yeah. That's really, really intense. Super I can't even believe that. Like I said, that's some fucking Dexter shit. That's some fucking Dexter shit. Like, the homicide detective was like, 
I have no fucking clue how he did that. Like, how did no one see his ass? Like, so it's in a, it's an active crime scene. And they knew that the earrings were there, and they went back, and they were like, Where I don't the fuck think they the knew the earrings were there. I think what had happened was, and this is just my opinion, they were canvassing the area. I see. And he got there first and, like, kind of ran through, like, where he so knew Dexter. she was abducted, grabbed it, and then ran away. Yeah, That's it's totally nuts. Dexter. Right? Wow. What a, what a fucking ballsy bitch. So. Not that he's cooler than No, anything, yeah. I'm just it's saying. It's wild. What a... F- like Jesus, it was. It's a wild story, and yeah. we're just fucking getting started. Part two is going to be like super intense. So excited! As if this one wasn't fucking intense. Yeah. It's going to be super intense. It's going to probably be a little bit longer than this episode. Yeah, but we're going to get it all out there because I am not about a part three. So we're going to get it all out there, and you are going to be getting part two of this episode the same day as our Patreon bonus episode. Are you ready to tell the people who we're doing? I got some rotten meat in my freezer. I knew you were going to do that. (laughs) Just want to take some pictures. (laughs) Relax. The fuck is that smell? Seriously. (laughs) So we will be doing Dahmer. (laughs) I know. If the Instagram post today didn't give it away. Yeah, yeah. for sure. We have been wanting to... I've been... I cannot tell you how many people have requested Dahmer. Yeah. It's too... If you're going to go into the nitty-gritty details, which I know you were... I wouldn't want to do it for a regular case. I think it's too graphic. Cause yeah. it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's bad. I've been, yeah. Even the word, like, putrefied is <laughs> coming to mind. <laughs> no, but we are going to, Koala is going to be doing Dahmer, and of course, as you as you people know, as y'all know, with our Patreon bonus episodes, we both know who the other person is doing, so that we can give it our all as far as explanations. I'm not going to do any external research, but I know the case of Bundy, so, yeah. I'm not Bundy, of Dahmer, Dahmer, so I will be contributing as well yeah. with my comments. So excited. So excited. So that will be coming out on the 29th, as well as this episode, part two, will be coming out on the 29th as well. So you're going to get double the action. Double the action. Two very, very famous cases. Yes. And you guys have one week to get that tier two, tier three Patreon membership so that you guys have access to that Dahmer case. Yes. As well as our previous cases that have come out on the 29th. Absolutely. And then every case that we do as well, Patreon members do get access to ad free. So there's mm-hmm. completely ad free. No content warning. No content warning on so the bonus episodes. Right. But on Dom on Dahmer, the bonus episodes? What do you mean? Because I was saying on every episode they get on the Patreon, no oh, ads. Yeah, but there's content warnings on those. There's just no ads. Right, correct. Yeah. But the top, the tier two and the tier three that get that exclusive bonus episode, yes. that Dahmer episode will have no content warning, no ads. We're just going straight into it. No editing. No editing. So you guys know what you're signing up for. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm not going to do a content warning on mm-hmm. fucking Dahmer. It's just going to be gross. Yeah. So well, I think we kind of did the same thing with Toy Box and Albert Fish. Albert Fish. Yeah. Those are the other two we've done so far mm-hmm. with the Patreon bonus episode. This will be our third installment of that. So go ahead and get enrolled into the Patri- Patreon for Tier 2 and 3 if you want access to that bonus episode. Uh, the Tier 1 Patreon, you can also access... Every episode ad-free. The bonus episode is going to be just for Tier 2 and Tier 3. Right. And also get your tickets to the True Crime Paranormal Podcast Festival that's happening sooner than we think. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I guess we should be looking forward to part two. I know. I need to shower after that. (laughs) Okay. Well, we will see you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Love Love you. you. Bye. You don't need real ink to make an impact. Let the power of temporary tattoos tell your story. 
Temporary Tattoos specializes in a wide range of temporary body art, including custom tattoos, with the option to add unique effects like metallic, glitter, glow in the dark, and so much more. Temporary tattoos are easy to apply and last up to five days. When you're ready for your new look, simply remove your fake tattoo using their lemon scented removing wipes, rinse, and repeat. Temporary Tattoo experiment with a new look without the commitment. Use the link in the show notes below for 10% off stock tattoos and bring your new look to life.